Hey, this is Jim Duncan with Nest Realty, and thanks for joining us again on Sweat the Details. This time we were joined by Scott Roth. He's the president and COO of Three Notch Brewing, based in Charlottesville. And we had a fantastic conversation about how he went from a BS in industrial engineering and pre-med at Lehigh University to founding an amazing brewery that has grown remarkably the last few years. We were fascinated by the parallels between Three Notch growth and culture and what we're building at Nest. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. I know we did. And join us next time. to jump right in and, and say, you know, you, you, you run, run three notched. Um, how did you go from pre-med? Chemistry. It's chemistry. I had a client years ago, we were, we were in closing and the, the, um, attorney said, Oh, you're a chemical engineer. You can make meth. My client deadpan says, I can make meth at scale. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you, 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 so tell us a little bit about, about yourself, who you are, if you don't mind. And then, and I am really fascinated about how pre-med led to making awesome beer. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. Um, so <clears throat> I started in engineering at Lehigh University, but to be fair, I, I actually started cooking sausage sandwiches at a Kutztown Folk Festival when I was 13. So I've been in the restaurant industry uh, going on 26 years now, which is kind of crazy. Um, but when I was at Lehigh, I, I ran... I did a lot of bartending. You can bartend at 18 in Pennsylvania. And I started managing an Irish pub there that had 46 draft lines. And this was late 90s, early 2000s, which is pretty early for craft beer in general. Uh, And the owner there was not the best owner, I will say, uh, but he did have a really good appreciation for beer. And that's kind of where my love of craft beer started. I remember hating IPAs. And I just couldn't get over why people were so into them. And then I drank one pretty much every day for a year, and I still love IPAs. So it just took me a while to come around right. um, to that flavor profile and, and hops in general. But I was always into the restaurant scene. Uh, the pre-med thing, I was very fortunate at Lehigh. I did very well. Um, when I graduated, I was afforded the opportunity to stay for free for a fifth year because of my grades. Um, but at the same time, my father passed away. He was a medic in the Navy and a podiatrist. And, um, he always told me don't go into medicine, but I think I was doing some soul searching. It was a tough time as a 22 year old to lose your dad. And we were close and I thought, you know what, maybe, maybe I do want to do medicine. I had the, the academic chops for it. Um, so I didn't have to do a ton more just because of how heavy science, uh, back, how much my, how much science background I had in engineering. Right. I had to do a couple orgo chems and a few things. So I really just bolted that onto my degree and I was able to stay for free, like I said. And while I was there, I was still running a restaurant and I was actually working at a high-end martini bar too. I was moonlighting there. So I was, I was running this Irish pub, doing that, um, going to school. And then I met my now wife uh, towards the end of that fifth year and really kind of decided that I didn't want to go back to school for four years. Um, loved the restaurant industry, talked my dear mother into giving me a loan to try to start my own restaurant because I loved loved it. Uh, did not like the idea of sitting behind a table and being an engineer and doing all the things that engineers have to do, although I was good at the work. Um, really enjoyed the, the people-facing component of food service. Right. And I'd been in it for a long time at that point, even though I was only you know, 22, 23. Um, so I was able to start searching all up and down the East Coast. ABC licenses are very different depending on what state you're in. Virginia's nice in the fact that it's treated like a traditional license. You can apply for it and you can get it and it's relatively inexpensive to have one. They will take it from you if you don't treat it appropriately. But in states like Pennsylvania and um, I think New Jersey and 
potentially even New York, they issue a finite number per county and they end up getting treated like real estate. They're very expensive. So if you wanted to buy an ABC license from somebody in Bethlehem, for instance, Pennsylvania, they were all already issued. So you had to buy it from somebody and those could be six figure plus purchases. So that was a very, um, you know, a large impedance to, to getting into the industry up there. So anyway, my wife found this place, Sharky's Bar and Grill on Craigslist. Um, I think we were in Burlington skiing and she found it. Uh, I don't even know what she would have found it. I don't think that was we even had smartphones at that time, but um, I came to Charlottesville. She was finishing her master's in higher ed. So she wanted to be in a college town. Uh, we came here, visited Sharky's, which was if anybody knows Sharky's, it was a pretty rough pool hall. It was a black drop ceiling, three futons, four pool tables, and a tiki bar um, in what was what became the McGrady space. I don't know if any of you guys have been to yep. McGrady's Irish yep. pub. Um, but I was like, I see it. And she was like, no chance. <laughs> uh, and I was like, no, no, I really do. Um, so I convinced a buddy from college who also had an engineering degree and a master's in education to quit his job in Manhattan moved down here with me, uh, took a loan from my mother. He took a loan from his parents. We paid them back. So I don't want to, you know, <laughs> get any Trump accusations here. Um, <laughs> but, uh, we opened McGrady's right. with that. And so I ran that. He met his now wife. She was getting her doctorate here at UVA. They moved on in 2009. So I bought him out. And then I met my business partners. Um, Derek Naughton is one of the founders. He's a, uh, it's kind of a silent partner except for his Irish accent and how much he drinks. Um, <laughs> But he uh, he was one of my first customers at McGrady's because he lived right down the street. And Derek's wife, Jamie, is lifelong friends with George Kastendike, who's our CEO and my business partner. So the three of us became friends. George and I are big Eagles football fans, so we bonded over beer and, and Eagles football for a couple years and um, really just started talking about uh, the need for a Charlottesville-based brewery. Um, at the time, Devil's Backbone and Blue Mountain were growing up. Devil's Backbone, I think, opened the same year that McGrady's did, so that would have been 2006. This was 2012. Uh, they also passed a law that allowed uh, breweries to start serving a pint without having food, which was a big thing for this state. Um, and we just looked at it and said, I think there's a need here. You know, the Charlottesville Associated Breweries were really in Nelson County for the most part. And um, we started putting a business plan together. We were able to find a great brewer and Dave Warwick uh, out of the rock bottom chain. He was an eight-year pro by the time he came on board with us. And um, I was excited to get out of the restaurant industry, quite honestly, and get into a business that I could scale. Mm -hmm. And and that's kind of where it all came from, sitting in a booth at McGrady's, drinking beers and talking brewery. That's great. So what, what, was, the, uh, what was the first beer? The first beer was actually Hydralian Red, which still exists. So that was a, a red ale that Dave, a similar red ale to what Dave had been brewing at Rock Bottom. And also that type of beer specifically is kind to new yeast strains. So it was smart to do it first because we were able to, pitch up the yeast and then use it for some other stuff. We did Hydralian Red first, Trader Saison was second, then 40 Mile IPA, and then I think Novito Brown. I think those were the first four. So you're you're clearly in a in a growing but competitive industry where there's changing consumer expectations all the time. How do you stay on top of and ahead of your consumer expectations in, in terms of tastes and, and experience and things like that? Uh, I mean, that's an ever growing problem. I think in our industry, we have done things pretty unique, uh, to the state of Virginia. We have our own distribution company until the fall of last year, central Virginia distributing handled all of our distribution for all of three notch in the entire state. And that is owned by our wives. 
And what that has allowed us to do is get beer to market very quickly, super fresh, manage the entire supply chain from raw materials acquisition until it pours out of the tap or it's picked off the shelf in a grocery store. And that has given us a competitive advantage in a number of ways. One, I firmly believe we still have the freshest beer in the state. If you turn our cans over at most locations, they're typically canned within a few weeks, which is pretty incredible, especially in the IPA game. Uh, and when you're competing with out-of-state IPAs that are warehoused and shipped and warehoused again and backstocked and you know and rotated, um, that's a big competitive advantage. Uh, and also because larger distributors that have tons of brands in their portfolio, they don't like to take every varietal you have because it's an inventory nightmare. But when you have your own distributor that's a sister company, we can send anything to market we want. So it's very easy for us to brew a small batch of something and get it out into the consumer's hands and, and test, um, test the reaction. Minuteman is a perfect example. We, the New England style IPA craze is real right now. We were way ahead of it. Um, Minuteman in Virginia came out I want to say four years ago already. And we brewed the first one and it was hazy. I don't know if you guys have ever had Minuteman, but it's not hazy anymore. And the reason it's not hazy is because when it came out, the trend wasn't there and people were turned off by it. There was a good 90% of the beer drinking population that didn't want to see cloudy beer because it's quite frankly, it's bad brewing. New England style IPAs are quick, bad brewing. You're not clarifying your beer. You're just kind of letting it go. You don't care if the yeast falls out and creates chunks. The industry's gotten better, so there's ways that we can avoid that now, which is nice. But Minuteman was a test, and it went over really well. And then we said, all right, well, if we're going to put this out to the masses, let's clarify this beer so that the the geeks of the beer world still enjoy the flavor profile and the smell. And yeah, we've been called out a couple times. This is in New England. It's not cloudy, but the vast majority of people try it, and they love it because it's low bitterness and you know clarified beer. The, the science just, uh, of beer just fascinates me. I mean, it, how, how long did it take you to get to the point where you, like, your team felt comfortable saying, we're going to start on a Monday and however long it takes to, to put a beer out and then say, that's one we're comfortable with? Uh, I, I wish it was more, uh, a more interesting story, but really immediately. I mean, we, George, Derek, and I are not brewers. Um, we hired the talent. And I think that's one of the things we've done very well. Um, we have a, awesome production manager now, Rob Mullen, who started with Old Dominion 25 plus years ago. He's been in the industry for that long. Dave Warwick came to us with eight years of experience and our first sellerman had 15 to 20 years of experience. So I, I think we've may have dumped three or four batches in six years. And mainly it's due to uh, somebody missing an SOP on sanitation. So I think from a product quality and you know confidence standpoint, we've, we've been there from the get-go. Dave's always made good stuff, um, and we've trusted him with that. So it started with the three of y'all, and how many? How many in your organization now? Yeah. So actually, George wasn't even on payroll. I think it was just Dave and I as the first full time employees, and then we had a handful of tap room staff and one other helper in the brewery. So let's say maybe ten people on payroll in total, and we're we're about one hundred and sixty five now for the and brewery. And how and many years? Six. And you started. In the old McGrady spot, which was a tap room, was, as you said, pints with no food. You had food trucks that came through each day, a different truck. And now you're in a facility that handles how many covers on an average weekend night? Yeah, we see about 22,000 people a week. Yeah. I mean, a tremendous shift. 
not just in the quality of beer or the amount of beer, but just the overall scope of the entire operations so completely real quick, so transformed. To push on that 22,000 number, Charlottesville is 50,000 people in the city. Yeah. The county is 105 additional. That's that's not a bad number. <laughs> yeah, I, I I we we're doing a better job of tracking uh, the the customers. The tourism component is is serious for us. Um, Fridays and Saturdays and Sundays, you know, we'll do two or three or sometimes four times the volume that we do Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Not that those days are bad necessarily, but. Um, we really do see a lot of out-of-towners that are coming through. And that was the goal of the X location, to your point. I mean, when when we really started looking at the best breweries across the, across the country, the ones that were interesting enough to be acquired by somebody as well, they all had a common thread, and so they all had a food component. So they had a, a real flag in their hometown. This is our our flagship location. This is where you come to really experience our brand. And we didn't feel like a disconnected tap room in an old dairy building with, you know, a thousand square feet was ever going to be that. Right. Um, and we were fortunate enough to find the X property, which is a, a gem in and of itself. Um, not without its challenges for sure, but, uh, allows us, you know, to really showcase the brand, I think in a much better way. So the, the movement and, and we, we want to kind of talk some about the investments and the, and the planning of that. But I want to just ask when you guys, when the, when the topic began getting broached of let's go from being a, a taproom tasting experience to a full-fledged restaurant tourism hub type is, establishment, when you guys made that, was that before um, the guys at Stony Point were beginning the dairy building transformation? So this is, for the listeners, this is the, the building that you guys were in is now under construction to become a, a completely new retail and and um, hospitality hub, if you will, with with residences, was that process already in play when you guys made the decision to go to Ix, or did Ix was Ix something you guys sought out, and then what's going on at Dairy Building happened after after that? Uh, we definitely started the process of finding the flagship location before we knew that the building was going to be sold. However, we found out that the building was going to be sold while we were in, in that process. So it was just a great timing for everybody. It, it really was. Yeah. Um, and we, we evaluated a, f- a few properties. Um, I don't think it matters to say at this point, but there was, there was a whole city block that was potentially for sale kind of over, over behind the Bodo's area there. Um, that was zoned appropriately for us. We looked at the Woolen Mills project, which actually is going to have a right. restaurant and that's a, that's a really neat spot out there. Um, and then we, we, it, it was a solid year of lease negotiation for us at, in our current location. So, and that we moved in there for, it was 2017. We made it in August of 17 for the first Virginia craft brewers fest that we hosted. So that whole process started in 2015, I'm going to oh. say probably somewhere around there. If you talk about lease negotiation, build out all that stuff. So yeah, we, we recognized pretty early on that we wanted to do that. And we had already opened our Harrisonburg location and our Richmond location and really felt like that was the next big phase for us. Oh, do you for the for the employees at those locations? Do you bring them to your flagship with any kind of frequency? Do they do they come to get in, you know, integrated into your culture? And how do you how do you build that, and maintain that thread, if you will, through all your locations? Yeah, that's a good question. I, we frequently use the term "island" when we're referring to the the managers at those locations, and. Um, in a good and a bad way, you know, we don't want them to feel like they are on an Island, but many times they are. 
especially considering that they're tap rooms, so they're very small staffs. They're not they're not food service. We're in the process of changing that in Richmond, actually, where I think we're going to be adding a food service component to our Richmond location, which is exciting. Um, but yes, they come to town once a month. The managers do, and I have we have a very um, awesome employee. His name's John Burnett. We uh, thankfully stole him from Aramark. He was their operations guy there and was overseeing something like, I want to say, 40 different retail operations at the University of Virginia. So he's our, he is, his title is currently still the GM of the X location, but he's really more like the VP of operations. And he oversees and is in touch daily with the managers of our other locations. And we have a Roanoke brew pub too. Uh, but the Roanoke brew pub, to, to my point earlier about staff, has a, you know, an executive chef a GM, an AGM, a full-time events person. So they've got their own little team down there, which I think really does help with culture. Um, but we, you know, take visits as frequently as we can. Right. I try not to go more than four or five weeks without visiting. How do y'all communicate? I mean, do you have any tools that you use from a technology perspective to communicate or is it just texting, email? I mean, all that stuff. Yeah. We have shared Google Drives. We have, um, you know, all of our POS platforms are on the same uh, system. So, okay. I mean, that... That's easy to get a view into. And then we do we do leadership meetings on Tuesday mornings uh, every week. So that's our entire leadership team. And that's when we invite those managers into, um, you know, on a somewhat regular basis. If they right. get the opportunity, we'd love, you know, we take them every week, but it's not necessary to, to do that. Right. So. Scott, with, with beer, there's obviously a, a real local pride that folks have about drinking what they know is brewed here. Do you guys find that the tap rooms kind of expand that that localness? Do, do people in Roanoke think of you as a Roanoke brewery, or do they think of it as a Charlottesville brewery with a local hub? How do you know? Do you know how that's that that culture feels? Yeah, I I think they do. I mean, for me as a business owner, I've always felt like if you can create a business in a locality and you're employing people from that town and creating jobs and, you know, contributing to the local economy, then you're a local, you're a local business. I mean, you are right. You've got people paying property taxes and you're paying their payroll taxes and social security and you're creating employment and, you know, Roanoke specifically, it's, it's a sizable operation down there. I mean, right. no different than any other full service restaurant. Um, and what's cool about those facilities is, our brewers, we have full-time brewers at all of our locations. They make a different beer every week. So you can go into Roanoke and get a beer that I've probably never had and may not ever have. Uh, we have, we've had hundreds of beers made in three notched portfolio that I've never even seen, um, because they come and go so quickly, which is pretty cool. And if you're in the local area and you don't want a Minuteman or a 40 mile, which is a, a course on draft everywhere in all of our locations, you can have five or six other beers that you will likely never see again unless they're really popular. Um, so that component, I think on the retail premise side is a driving factor for people to adopt three notch as a local brewery. Uh, it also, um, allows us in distribution to be top of mind. So we started Harrisonburg because we were expanding distribution to Harrisonburg again with our own sister company. And the thought was, well, why would I ever pick up a three notch off the shelf if I'm in Harrisonburg, if I haven't ever experienced the brand? So let's create a place for people to walk in and experience the brand. And that goes to culture. So there is, there is a good amount of cultural train training around how we treat our customers, what the expectation is, how we want the place to feel and how we want the customers to feel when they come in the door. 
And as long as we execute on that, we feel like that creates enough of a connection with three notch that when you're at the grocery store, Oh, Minuteman. Yeah. I had that. I tried that on my flight the other day. That was great. I'm going to grab it off the shelf and we've seen it. It's worked. Um, we're, we're the fifth largest brewery in the state of Virginia in IRI data, and we will likely be the fourth by the end of the year. And we're competing with O'Connor, Star Hill. Um, I removed Devil's Backbone from that conversation. If you want to put them, they're at the top. So bump us down one more notch. No, but, why, why are they out? Well, well the, I'm just independent Virginia craft. And they got, they got bought by... They, they did. And it's also not fair. Um, those guys are great. I love Devil's Backbone. Right. I have some good friends over there. I'm not saying anything about them. But when you're talking about how you're capitalized, right? when you're competing against a brewery that has that kind of support was Anheuser-Busch it's, was yeah it's, yeah it's apples to oranges right yeah. so i'm talking about independent breweries that have that don't have that type of uh additional support behind them um so you know we're, we're talking star hill which has been around for a long time o'connor which is i think five years older than us um blue mountain is is just is is number four right above us and i think we may you know hopefully pass them in sales this year and um hardywood which has been around longer than right. us too so there's some big boys and yeah. we're doing most of it. So three, ourselves. so three of Virginia's top five brewers are located in Charlottesville or Nelson County. I mean, correct, Central Virginia. Right. I mean, if you that's include, amazing. If you include Devils, it's four, four of six. the six. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, they are. And then one, O'Connor obviously is Norfolk, which is a huge market, and they're doing incredible things with El Guapo, and then uh, and then Hardywood. It's a big player in Richmond. What other areas around the country have a similar you know, not vibe or, or culture around beer? I mean, that you look to as, as inspiration or we'd like to get there or we don't want to do that or, you know, where do you see that? Um, well, I think some of our inspiration for the three-notched flagship model came from Founders, Bells, Stone, um, Sierra Nevada's location down in North Carolina, uh, Which is phenomenal. Uh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. In Asheville. No, it's, it's, it's incredible. Phenomenal. I mean, <sighs> that's that's a different level. But, right. But th those are sort of the inspirations there. And then I think, you know, there's a there's a couple areas in the country where the taproom model, where they have multiple smaller locations, has taken off. But it's not new news in those areas, right? It was new in Virginia. We right. were the first ones to really do that. We were the first ones to really make a go of it with self-distribution. Um so, I mean, I don't, I don't, I can't think of a specific brewery that we're, I think we're trying to be unique. Um, yeah. We want two more locations. We want one in Norfolk, which we have an LOI on, and hopefully we'll have a location in early 2021 or late 2020, which is going to be really cool. And we're working in Northern Virginia too. I mean, if we could be in six, you know, the, the major metropolitan areas, six locations throughout the state. Right. Our goal is let's own our backyard. So we're only focused on Virginia. We don't send a drop of beer outside of state lines. Really? I want to talk about um, about you know the real estate industry where we are, where we're operating is just evolving on a regular basis. Just continued, and we have conversations all the time of where are we going to where is the business going to be in five years? Where is the industry going to be in ten years? How do you see your industry evolving in the next five or ten years? And and do you have any kind of uh, expectations of how it's going to change? Yeah, I mean, my guess is that there will continue to be consolidation on the in the distribution channels. Any any of the breweries who have stood up large operations as a new brand in the last four years, 
that have overcapitalized, you know, have too much money and equipment are going to be in trouble. Uh, it's not easy to get into the distribution chains like it was 10 years ago. 15 years ago, it was real easy. Um, I mean, it's never easy, but there's so much competition now. And there's a there's variety and skew fatigue occurring at the buyer level for major national chains. You have to have really solid data to justify um, expanding your footprints. So I think you'll see a lot of those breweries that have spent $2 million on build-outs either look to sell, consolidate, become part of larger networks, or dissolve. Um, but I think the taproom model will continue to be strong. I think we're moving more towards the traditional European um, brewery model, which for the most part, there's, you know, little breweries all over the place. And if you don't spend an arm and a leg, uh, putting up a brewery, which you don't really need to do, you can spend $150,000, which is basically what you spend to build a kitchen and put a brewery in there and work pretty modest hours and run a lean staff and make a good living. And I know a, a number of my peers that are in the industry that have no desire to do more than that. They're like, I can put my kids through college on this. I love my job. I get to brew beer. I make a different beer every week. I get to meet my taproom people and I'm good with it. I don't see that going anywhere. So I don't know that the number of breweries is going to dramatically decrease, but I do think there's a section of our peers that are going to really struggle for the next couple of years. And I think we were fortunate to get in when we did and we got ahead of that a little bit. And now by adding some additional retail margin to our business, by opening these other locations, it really puts us in a spot to, for the business to pay for itself. Interesting. So, I mean, I, I love the way that you have started your business and as you have grown it and gotten into it more, you've run into roadblocks and said, we need to start our own distribution and laws have changed. And you've, you know, looked at new opportunities with, with, uh, with the restaurant business, uh, and continue to look at new opportunities out there. So clearly you're looking at, you know, you guys are in your business and you're very focused on details this podcast, Sweat the Details. Um, I'd love to wrap up with one final question for you and just say, what's the one detail that you and your partners and your and your team just are laser focused on and sweat on a daily basis? <laughs> One's tough. Um, so it it's probably a bigger, it's not a it's not a minute detail, but for, for me, we are approaching a point in our business where we're going to be faced with a very large decision, and it's quite frankly the decision that we've seen take down some big guys. Green Flash is one. Um, uh, what was the company up in was it Long Trail in Vermont? There have been a couple big breweries. When you get to a certain size, you have to decide if you're comfortable being at that size forever because at some point the facility's maxed out or you want to take a look at a real real estate play and double down, triple down with a five, six, seven million dollar expansion and then decide whether or not you have what it takes to fulfill enough, build enough demand and have the supply go out the door to cover that cost. And I think we're getting to a point where that decision is going to be on the table for us in 24 months. Um, so it's something we talk about pretty regularly. Like, do we just want to stay in Virginia, try to max out our current facility, open a few more retail locations, and just have the engine churn? But at that point, then growth, in theory, stops. 
right? And I'm not sure where our comfort level is there because we feel like we have an obligation to our investors to get them a return. And that's probably sufficient if we have good EBITDA and you grow the business to a good point. But as entrepreneurs and people who are inherently um, prone to a little risk, I think we're always looking at the next big play. And that one I think about pretty regularly now that we're at the position we're in, if that makes good sense. It does. Challenges. It's a good It's a good challenge to have, and it's uh, great that you focus on it. So thanks for taking time. Today. It's awesome that you uh, spent some time with us, and uh, keep it going. Thanks. Scott, thanks so much. Really appreciate your time. Yeah, drink Thank three you. notch. Will do. <laughs>